What is happening, everybody? Welcome to the Sneaky Emu. This is a place where we are attempting to discover the wonder, the beauty of the divine and our lives that is right in front of us, that is ever before us, that we may have overlooked, but has been right in front of us the entire time. So, what is happening? What is happening in my world, in my time? It is the end of August, and here we are. We've made it through the summer. We have started school back up, and now we're getting into a bit of a routine, hopefully, getting the kids back in school. It's all kind of wonderful things. So uh, I'm so thankful that you're here with me today. I want to say big shout outs to uh, to you guys for being here, whatever you're up to, whatever you find yourself doing on this fine morning, afternoon, or evening. Mom, thanks for listening. I couldn't be happier today. Um, so today I want to talk, <laughs> talk about... Uh, I, I have this kind of general idea, but I want to, this is what episode is this is episode six. Are we on episode six already? Man, oh man, time flies when you're having fun. Let me double check that just, <laughs> just to make sure I, I believe it's episode six. Sure. Why not? We'll go with that. If it's not, um, we may have to relabel or we may be in in trouble? Not in trouble. It doesn't really matter what, what number it is, does it? We're here. We're together. That's the beauty of the whole thing ultimately, isn't it? Sure. Why not? Let's go with that. So today, I'm going to double check. Yeah, it is six. It's episode six. There we go. So um, I want to talk to you about the story. I got two stories about two missing passports. So this is the episode of the two missing passports and the feeling of uncertainty when you don't feel at home and what that has to do with uh, the kind of life we live and how we understand and take in everything else. <laughs> so hopefully that's a good enough description to get us started uh, <laughs> today. So... Story number one of the missing passports. Um, it was many, many years ago, <laughs> probably, probably 15, 20, maybe 20, close to 20 years ago now at this point, I had the privilege of going to Africa. So I went to Africa with a buddy of mine. He grew up as a missionary kid there, uh, spent most of his childhood, his young uh, early adult, you know, uh, up to teenage years, maybe like pre-college years in Africa, his his uh, family lived there, preached there, his you know all kinds of interesting stuff, and so we met at Bible College, and we became friends through the avenue of soccer. We both played on the school soccer team, our school. Uh, so we played soccer in college, and it's it it's not that big a deal. Like oh, you're a collegiate athlete. Well. The school that we were a part of was <laughs> was a part of the NCCAA, right? Not the NCAA, the NCCAA, the Nation National Christian Colli Collegiate Athletic Association, and so and in our NCCAA uh, division, we were not even a Division One team. We were a Division Three team, <laughs> which means we were <laughs> at the, the lower end of college athletics, like in the nation. So we were on the team, no scholarships provided. Uh, and we became friends. And my friend said, uh, Hey, you should come to Africa with me. I'm going to Mozambique, uh, where my family was over the summer. You should come. I was just about to graduate. I said, sure. Why not? And this is before, you know, like, um, easy access to cell phones and stuff. So, I wouldn't really be, I could communicate with my family, but it would be difficult, uh, a, a lot more difficult than it is now, some 20 years later. So we go to Africa, uh, we stay in Mozambique. At one point, me and my friend get disconnected, we get separated, he goes to do, like, intentionally, it wasn't, we. I went missing or anything, but we, our paths kind of went a different direction, 
And every so often, because we were there for about, I think it was about three months, and every so often you had to go to the border to check in, just like to let them know that you're still there, things are fine, whatever. So we would go from uh, kind of in the southern end of Mozambique, and we'd have to travel to the South African and Mozambican border to just say, hey, we're here, we're still good. So after our paths had, had kind of diverged, is that the right word? Diverged? Yeah, opposed to one another. There was a particular time, it was around July, it was near my birthday. My friend said to me, hey, come down to South Africa uh, for your birthday, check in at the border so they know you're good, and then uh, we have a birthday surprise for you. So I said, wow, that's awesome. So I figured out how to get down to the border, made our way um, to, to meet my buddy in South Africa, and he said, um, he, he basically got me... Uh, a birthday present that was a night safari. So in uh, South Africa, there's this place called Kruger National Park. It's one of the largest, like national, like like um, wildlife sanctuaries in the area. It's approximately the size of Israel, right? It's a big. So when I say park or or wildlife thing, it's not like a zoo. It's like a giant territory. And the animals aren't in cages. It's just wild. And like it's open. And so you, you literally drive your car through the park and then hope you get to see something. So we went to Kruger National Park, stayed with my buddy. He sent me on this night safari for my birthday. And it was this absolutely incredible experience. The whole thing was an incredible experience. Um, I, I go at night. I meet the driver. There's me and two ladies from Germany who seem to be in love with each other. And the three of us get in this safari Jeep thing. Like it's big, big jacked up tires, you know, like everything you would picture like on a safari. The sides are open, you know, so you can just kind of look over the rails. It's got a little canopy over the top and we've got our driver. So it's just the driver and the three of us. The two ladies, they sit in the front seat and they keep to themselves, and I, being the awkward, like, white kid, uh, sit in the very back of the, of the safari vehicle, and we each get these giant flashlights, and the driver takes us out into, like, the bush. Like, you get to go, because you're paying for the service, you get special treatment, uh, you don't have to stay on the roads. The driver takes you like to where the animals will be hanging out, so you get to see them all in their natural, in their natural habitat, like just kind of doing their thing. But it's all at night, so we drive and we get to we're flashing our flashlights all around, and we get to see you know uh, a herd of elephants. We get to see a bunch of giraffes. We get to see hippos. We get to even lions. I saw a lion so close, like I could smell its breath, and this was. I actually had I had a camera, but it, it was one of the uh, the old disposable kinds. You know, this, this we're like really dating this whole thing here. It was one of the old disposable kinds, and you you know you like where you wind it up, you could hear it like click, and then you would take the picture snip, and then you would have to wait uh, to get that disposable camera processed before you could see your photos. So, anyways, this lion was right outside the vehicle and it was so it was so close and so scary not like it was trying to attack or anything but just like it being in awe of how close I was to an actual like untamed uncaged beast uh I was so nervous I, I couldn't even get my camera to wind like I just was like just staring at this thing I wanted to take a picture to show how close I was but I couldn't do it so uh, we continue on, see a bunch of just incredible, incredible things. And then part of the safari included a meal. So we drive out. We're in the middle of the bush. The guy, uh, the driver shuts the car off, shuts the lights off, and it's just like a thousand percent dark. It's it's so It's so dark. And I remember thinking... Oh, this is the part where we die. This this is the part that makes the headlines about the three people that vanished 
in the middle of the African, like it wasn't jungle, safari, whatever it was, uh, in the bush. And so we get out and the guy, he's the guy who tells us to follow him. And we start walking in the darkness in the bush. And then all of a sudden there's this guy with a machine gun standing out in the middle of nowhere, which doesn't add, uh, or doesn't help to, to calm my nerves at all. And then there's like you, your eyes begin to adjust and begin to focus. And then I begin to see that there's these ladies who are cooking dinner. And then there's these tables. And this is where we're going to have dinner. So me and my two new German friends have this incredibly romantic dinner <laughs> out under the African sky, uh, uh, the night sky. We got to see like the Southern Cross, you know, like the different constellations in the Southern Hemisphere that we don't, that I wouldn't normally get to see living in Florida in the Northern Hemisphere. And so we have this beautiful evening. We drink some wine. We have some dinner. Uh, and I know we ate a bunch of different stuff. I don't really even remember what it was, but it just, the evening itself was incredible. So we have this beautiful night. We get back in the car. We go home. The next day, I get up to return to the border to check back in to go back to where I was staying in Mozambique. And I can't find my passport. Yeah. Have you ever been in a different country and can't find your passport? It's a bit unnerving. So uh, I, I start to panic. I start to freak out. And I'm literally like, I uh, had been in the country for a couple months. And yeah, I was like three days from having to return home. So three days from having to return home and I am without passport and I'm ready to go home. I'm like over because uh, I, I spent so much of the time alone. So I'm ready to go home. Can't find my passport. And I don't know what to do. So I know that I have to go to the embassy. Um, and I am not, I'm like several hours from the closest embassy. I think we were in, in an area called uh, Nelsprit uh, near, I think it's Mapumalunga National Park. This is all just stuff from memory. I don't even know how I'm remembering, remembering all this. But uh, I know I had to go several hours to get to Johannesburg, South Africa, to find the closest U.S. Embassy. Well, I have no way to get there. My buddy was going in a different direction uh, to, back to Mozambique to get our stuff. And so I take public transport, this uh, bus, this <laughs> like a local bus uh, that's just crammed full of people on this, like, I don't remember, three, four, five hour drive from one city to another to get to Johannesburg in order to try to find a place to stay in order to get to the embassy in order to try to get a new passport. Like it was really, really a bit of a, a wild situation. And I, I didn't, uh, because of the time uh, differences and the ability to contact like my parents, it was very difficult to get like, you know, we had printed out, um, we had printed out like copies of the passport. So I was eventually able to get that. I found a guy to stay with who let me stay at his house for like two days as I try to sort through this whole thing. I go to the U.S. Embassy. And I'm just like pleading with the officer, please get me home. I just I just want to go home. I need a, anything like a temporary passport, anything. And the guy, the guy that was supposed to be on my side in my moment of difficulty was a huge jerk. <laughs> I wish I could remember his name, but I can't. So this guy is a huge jerk and he's making me just go through, jump through all these hoops. Like, and he's not like helping me. He's not comforting me. He's just kind of going through all kinds of difficulties. So eventually after like a couple hours of negotiating and crying and pleading to this guy, eventually he just says, well, then I guess I'll just print you a temporary passport. And he literally walks over to a thing, pushes a few buttons, in like 20 minutes, out comes this temporary passport that I can just get home. I'm like, dude, you could have started with that. Like, you're help me out here. You know what I'm saying? So, man, the whole process was, it was a bit daunting. It was a bit scary. There's this sense of, 
of uh, of it's it's not doom. <laughs> it's not doom. But when you're alone and you're in a different country and you don't know how you're going to get home, it can be a bit scary <laughs> to say the least, right? Because that's the thing is we we all have a sense of home and we all have a sense of not being home. And the thing that we want most is to feel like we are home. And when we don't have the feeling of that security, that sense of being home, it can be a bit unnerving. It could lead to things like panic, fear, doubt, cry, a lot of crying in my case. Uh, there, there's, something, there's something so very special about that feeling about being home. So that's story number one. When I was in Africa in my early 20s, I went on a night safari and my passport, it might got stolen. I don't think my German friends found did it, but I think maybe somebody stole it. Uh, and to have that sense of not being home can be, or and not being able to get home, oh man, that can really be a bit unnerving. Now, the other situation, fast forward, give or take 15 years, I found myself uh, in this really cool thing that I was doing with some buddies of mine that were in a band. And my job was to be the tour manager. Yeah, for some reason they thought that would be a good idea. (laughs) So uh, we had a particular tour where we went overseas. And so the tour was running through like the UK, I think it was basically the UK. So uh, Scotland, England, Wales, we got to travel all over, see all this cool stuff. Really, really cool stuff. One of the, I remember one of the mornings, the the driver on the bus that we were on, he drove through the night so that we could get to Stonehenge and we got to watch the sunrise over, like the sun come up, yeah, sunrise, at Stonehenge and got to take like a little, little tour around that. And man, it was really, really cool. So the tour ended that little, uh, that was like a, a couple weeks we were there. The tour ended in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, and it was, Scotland was, I mean, Glasgow was just incredible. Tour ended there. And so there was like some, some like uh, intricacy to how we were going to exit the country because of just traveling. So... Uh, and and we had to we had to get out of Scotland on time because our flight our next flight flew back to the states where we had uh, we had like a day to get to another show back in in America <laughs> so we had this all kind of organized and somewhere along the lines um, one of the guys in the band lost his passport so this created some complications because we had to be at a show like in two days and had to figure out how to get a passport. Well, the place to get a passport that we had to go to get a passport was back in London. So we were in Scotland. The flights were out of Scotland to get to America. One of the guys loses a passport. He would have to go drive down to figure out to get to London to get a passport to catch a different flight to meet us at the same place in America within three days. <laughs> no problems, no worries. So as the tour manager, um, my job was to kind of, I had a decision to make. Do I stay with the five or six guys, at the, the, the larger group, and get them to where they need to be? Or do I stay with the guitar player, like, the lead guitar player to get his passport to make sure that he can get into America. <laughs> so the decision was made. I would stay with the one guy uh, because that seemed like the better the better decision at the time. And the other the other group of guys could collectively get themselves to where they needed to be. So as the tour manager, the whole time I held on to the passports for the whole band. Um, with the exception of the one who lost his. Yeah, see, I was right. I was right, Joey. I was right. You should have gave me your passport. So anyways, um, because I was holding all the passports um, and his got lost, when the time came, the last show was in Glasgow, 
I rode with Joey in a different bus to go back to London. Now, the plan was that the guys were going to get up the next morning, board their flight, and, and, and stick to the plan, the itinerary, itinerary that we had already set out. So Joey and I left. We went to, we were making our way to, Glass, to uh, London to get him a passport to try to meet up with the guys uh, in America. And we were riding in this, it was like a double-decker bus, but it was a double-decker tour bus. And so there were bunks and stuff like on this upper level, this whole thing. And it was really quite comfortable. And we were, we had hitched a ride with this, with this other band that we were touring with. Um, after the show, we took this bus headed to London to get the passport. I, uh, went to sleep thinking we would get up the next morning in London. Everything would get, we would work everything out at the embassy and, uh, everything would get back on, on, on schedule. The problem was, was that after I left the group of the band in Scotland, making our way to London, uh, about halfway through the night, in the wee hours of the morning, like two or three in the morning, I woke up in a panic, realizing that I had all of the passports for the dudes, for the rest of the band that was supposed to leave that morning. The, I, I have never, I woke up with swear words just pouring out of my, <laughs> out of my mouth, knowing that I had made a major, major mistake. My plan had actually backfired because I failed to give the passports back to the dudes. So I had to make a split second decision and uh, a risky, a risky decision. So we pulled off on like some random uh, gas station, petrol petrol station and I went in it's like two in the morning I went into the manager I found I went into the store found the manager whoever's in charge and I pleaded and begged with them to hold on to six American passports uh, as one of the guys in Scotland took a taxi like two hours away into England to this gas station to acquire the passports so that they could go home now, I don't know why or how that was the good idea, but it was kind of this last ditch effort to keep things on schedule. So that's what I did. I, I told the guy, I'll give you money. Please hold on to these. This is like super important. A guy's coming. You should be here in a couple hours to pick these up. So this is all happening at two or three in the morning, knowing that the, the, the band is going to catch a flight in just a few hours and if this doesn't work, the whole thing's kind of screwed up. Uh, so that's what we did. We left them there. Uh, one of the other guys came and got them. That whole thing worked out fine. I went with the other guy to the to the embassy in London, and then we got that squared away. And then we hopped on a different flight, flew all the way to America, and made the show. Like I'm talking, just in that we were actually a little late, but we got there in time enough to get the show done. Wow. That it was a it was a mess. It was a huge mess and I remember the the lost passport being a hassle and causing some anxiety and then I remember me having the extra passports for the dudes that were trying to get home and all the anxiety and the scrambling that that caused. Ugh. Even now I can feel like just that tension welling up inside of me at the thought of those memories. It was such, uh, it was, it was such an unnerving sort of moment. So that's the thing about this idea of being home, being in a place that is not home and trying to get home and the anxiety or the unsettledness that comes along with it, Right. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been stranded or felt like you've been abandoned or felt like you're not where you should be or felt like uh, you're not home and you want to be home, maybe you know this feeling all too well. It can be it can be a bit scary, like really, really scary um, can cause so much anxiety and pressure when you don't feel like you're in the place that you're supposed to be, like when you don't feel settled. I mean, the fact that 
the fact that you your passport is kind of this it's your identity it's your identity and it's having this security of your identity that then allows you to travel to go elsewhere and then to return home and it's this idea that having a home having a home having a home base having a place of of identity allows you to do the traveling so when you are taken out of this sense of security or when you choose to travel and things go wrong, the one thing that you want the most is kind of just to go home. <laughs> That's been my experience. Uh, I had my passport stolen. I have no sense of identity. The thing that I long for the most is to be in the place where I'm from. When the band is traveling and the one guy loses his passport and we can't get home, there's unrest and anxiety. When you realize that Seth has all the passports and isn't with the rest of the guys that need the passports, <laughs> it causes even more problems. We're all far from home and we're all nervous about how we're going to get back to where we're from, back to the place that our passport says that this is your primary sense of identity. Now, all of that being said, as we're just getting into this, when it comes to the traditional Christian thought of who we are as people and what the goal of this whole thing is, the goal of life and humanity, the, over, the overarching story of what existence is, there has been this primary thought for so very long that has to do with this world is not your home or we are just strangers passing through we are aliens in a foreign land you are seth in africa uh and your passport has been stolen <laughs> you're traveling the world and eventually you have to go somewhere else you have to go back home and so the, the, the thought has been that we don't really ultimately belong here and that um, our whole goal in, in this existence is to figure out how to get out of this place, right? Isn't that, hasn't that been the primary thought and teaching of if you've grown up in a church or been around a church or heard people talk about church? Isn't that the primary thought in culture that this is what the Christian people think? that God is going to destroy all of this, and so we had better be good enough to try to leave this place because this world is not our home anyways. This raises all kinds of issues. Before I get to the issues, though, let me just set, set a little, little uh, a few things in place because I think there's a lot that we overlook when it comes to the story of the Bible. If you've been taught that this whole place is not your home, then of course there's not really a vested interest in this place. We'll, we'll come back to that, uh, to the implications of all this. When you consider the story of the Bible and how the story starts and how the story of the Bible ends, you have to keep these things in mind because these are what set the tone and the premise for everything else. Okay, so... How does the story of the Bible start? The story of the Bible starts with there's this divine spirit being who speaks all things into existence, who begins to create. And that poem, which is what, what Genesis 1 and 2 is, is this poem, uh, there isn't somewhere else. There is just this spirit being who begins to create. It doesn't talk about God in heaven and then creating that which is outside of heaven. It's just God creates. So what you see through the story of creation is God speaks all that is into existence and then God creates, you know, including man, and then God dwells with man within creation on earth. Like the story starts here. On this earth, this place that we call home. Now, if you fast forward uh, through to the book of Revelation, what you see in Revelation 21 is 
you see the new heaven and the new earth, which people often use as a way to talk about God destroying the thing that is, which I would say I disagree. Uh, You see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending from the heavens to the earth. So there's this movement at the end of the story of the Bible, this movement of things coming down. Things are descending. God descends, right? God comes to us. The incarnation is God descending into the form of man. At the end of the story, uh, God is descending to the earth. It even says the one seated on the throne says, I am making all things new. There's this really interesting bit um, when it comes to the Greek text about this word new. There's two primary words in the Greek text for new. There's the word naos and there's the word kainos. So naos has to do with something that is brand new. For example, you bought a new car. Uh, You bought a brand new house, like you built a brand new house. Um, The word kainos has to do with something that's being restored. It's It's being made to be like new. It's like Extreme Home Makeover. Move that bus. Remember that show? Um, They take what was, they remodel it, they rehabilitate it, and they make it better than it was before. They They make it new again. So naos and kainos. So in the text where it says, the one seated on the throne says, I am making everything new, the word that's used is not naos, something that is brand new, a whole different new earth, right? A new heaven and new earth. It's, it's not that. It's kainos. I am making all things like new again. In other words, I am restoring all things. All things are being made new. So the way, and then what you see is that God is dwelling on earth with his creation, with his people. So the divine being that created out of nothing and dwelt on the earth with his creation, at the end of the story, is again dwelling on earth with his creation. So the way the story of the Bible starts is that it starts here on the earth where you live. The way the story of the Bible ends is that it's all coming back here on the earth where you live. Like there's, there's really, there, there is no elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, Well, what about heaven? What do you do with heaven? Aren't we going to heaven? How do you, where does that factor into the conversation? Well, I don't, I don't want to get, this isn't really the path for, for this conversation, but it's like N.T. Wright talks about, um, where he talks about heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. The idea being that uh, heaven is not the ultimate destination, but in the end, all things are, are coming here. Uh, I've also heard it said that heaven is where God is storing the earth's future, right? That's the picture we see at the end in Revelation 20, 21, that it's the, the holy city is coming to the earth, that sort of thing. Um, so the story of the Bible starts here, and the story of the Bible ends here. And so when we live with the thought, or we've been taught the thought that the goal is to get out of here and go somewhere else, then we live with this sort of thought and feeling that this world is not our home, that we're just a stranger passing through, which means, going back to the idea of the passports, is that it can be very easy when you think about life, when you think about death, to feel a bit of nervousness and unsettledness because we don't feel as if we really have a home and we feel as if the goal is to go somewhere else. Now, th- this raises a bunch of other issues. If you th- if you don't think that this earth is your home, then I don't really care about this place, do I? I don't have a vested interest in this place. So when it comes to how I live, um, it doesn't really matter. Do you see? Uh, it, I don't, it doesn't matter if I recycle or not because this earth is temporary and God's going to destroy it and then we're going to go somewhere else. But that's not the story. It starts here and it ends here. Like renewed here and we get to be here. So the earth, 
is your home. If I think God's going to destroy it all and we're going to go somewhere else, then it doesn't matter how much gas I use and how much, uh, how much I pollute the air and how much I don't recycle and how much trash I throw on the ground and how much, how much garbage I put into the ocean. It does, none of that really matters other than, oh, well, you know, we, we want to keep it a little nice for a little longer. Do you see? So if, if I believe that the earth is essentially disposable, then I have no real desire or reason to want to maintain it. Of course, this, this really stands in opposition to how the story actually starts. Because when God does create, he gives responsibility over all things, over the, over the earth, to mankind. You, God says, you will be my stewards. God says, you will... The instructions that he gives to mankind in the beginning is like uh, to work and uh, uh, to work and care for the garden, to to rule and subdue, and we've taken that to mean like to exploit and treat it as we wish. That's not the point. That's not the goal. The goal is that uh, the, the the point behind it, the underlying thing behind it, is that you are the steward who's who's meant to help make things fruitful. Right. That's the thing. Be fruitful and multiply. It's not just about, you know, <laughs> if you're Catholic, it's not just about having babies, right? That's the thing, or that's the, the, the typical thought. <laughs> it's about helping other things to be fruitful. It's about guiding and shaping and maintaining creation, that everything that God created is also creating more of itself. And then you have this goal, this role to help guide and shape it as it continues to unfold. You are an active participant in the ongoing unfolding of creation, right? Which means, again... <laughs> that if you live with the thought or idea that this world is not your home and you're just passing through, then I don't really have to care or, or tend to any of it. And I'm, and I'm not an active participant. I'm more of a bystander. I'm more of a, of a, of a, a person on the sidelines watching it all happen, just kind of enjoying the game as it proceeds. And I don't really have any input or care as to what happens anyways. But if I understand that I am participating in the maintaining of the home that I have been given and been in charge responsibility with, then all of a sudden everything I do actually matters. How I live now matters because this world is my home and and I want to create the best home that I possibly can. This also ties into some, some bigger thoughts when it comes to things like fear of death and fear of what's next. Um, if you've ever had, I, I've had these moments <clears throat> and I occasionally still have them where like the reality of death becomes very gripping, like where the thought of death becomes <clears throat> very, very real and very tangible and very palpable in my mind and in my body and in my being. Um, I've also had these moments, maybe you've had these, I don't know. Uh, where you've experienced something really, really profound or really beautiful, and then maybe, uh, maybe it's just me, I don't know. I've had those moments where I've had this profound, beautiful moment, and then had that mo moment followed by a sense of fear and panic and anxiety because of the thought at one time that it was all going to go away, right? Like, uh, you're... You're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon watching the sunrise on at the at the at the mouth of the Grand Canyon or you're staring at the ocean watching the sunset or you're you're staring up into the night sky like just standing in awe of the universe and it's this kind of profound deep beautiful moment but then you have this thought like one day I won't be able to experience this or one day this is I I won't I won't be here one day. And so there's this panic that sets in after the beautiful moment. There's this panic moment um, at the thought that this will, uh, this will like end. Right. So when, if, if I live with the idea that the earth is not my home, then yeah, that, that makes, that makes sense. Of course, because I, I like, I like the earth. I like the Grand Canyon. I like the sunsets and the oceans and the mountains. And that's a beautiful thing. And so maybe rather than like being panicked and worried that 
that this place isn't my home. Maybe the reason, maybe the reason I get anxiety about death is not because of just the fear of unknown, right? Like that's isn't that the thing? Like that the fear is really about what's on the other side. Like I, there's uncertainty. We can't possibly fully know what's actually going to happen, and so there's this anxiety or fear in the unknown. But maybe, maybe the reason is not. Uh, maybe the reason we f- experience fear or panic or nervousness at the thought of death is not because um, of the unknown, but because it's the thought of being away from what is our actual home. It's the thought that my passport says I'm a citizen of the earth and I'm going to be taken somewhere else to live forever. You are Seth in his 20s, and you are going to be stuck in South Africa, but you don't belong in South Africa. <laughs> you belong in America. You see, so sometimes I think because we've bought into this idea that the whole story is moving somewhere else, it creates in us this unnecessary fear and anxiety at something like the thought of death because we're afraid of being in a place that we're not, that, 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 that we don't know about when the reality is when we, un- if we understand this concept of thought that the story starts here and the story ends here and God's reclaiming and renewing all that is, and there's this restored earth, then maybe it brings me a bit of comfort in some of these thoughts because it's going to be this restored version of what is. So now maybe I can be at, be at a bit more peace at the thought, knowing that in the end, whatever that looks like is that, uh, it might have, it might look a bit like the things that I'm already familiar with, right? Like, I already know what home is. I've been experiencing home this whole time. Do you see? So I don't have to live with this anxiety or fear or uncertainty or or I don't have to live with the sense that I don't belong here. I don't have to live with the sense that that one day this is all going to be over and it's, it's you know God's going to destroy all this and then you know who knows what's going to happen. I can live with a sense and comfort knowing that like I am home. This is my home. <clears throat> and I can live live as a participant in in the creating and maintaining of my home the beautification of my home this earth is 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 my home right like that's a that's a better that's a better story that's a better way to go through life it's it's better knowing and understanding that what i do now matters because if we're all going somewhere else then what i do right now eh like who ultimately cares if it's all going to be destroyed anyways do you know like why put in the effort why put why why should it matter if we poison the earth with you know chemicals and pesticides and why should it it, it doesn't matter if it's all going to be destroyed anyways like might as well get get out of it what we can while we can <clears throat> see but that's not the story the story is it's here the story is you have responsibility. The story is what you do in this life matters. The story is everything is connected to everything else. And so whether you neglect your home or whether you uh, help your home to flourish affects everything else. I don't know if you've seen, if I talked about it, because I don't remember what I've talked about. There's a series on Netflix called Connected. I'm pretty sure I've talked about it. I couldn't not talk about it. And it's a really interesting show about that that just from a scientific perspective uh, focuses on the interconnectedness of all things. Like one of my favorite ones was uh, there's like six episodes. You should totally check it out if you haven't or you don't know about it already or if you if I haven't talked about it. There's one on dust. <laughs> they take these like simple little things and expand upon it and help you to see how the whole world is connected. Uh, and one of the big ones in the dust thing, I don't want I'm not going to ruin the whole thing, but the dust, like the, these giant dust storms that are coming off uh, out of the Sahara, I think it is 
coming off the coast of Africa play this like major role all throughout the world. Like for example, these major dust storms have, have the ability to, to kind of, um, uh, take out some of the forming hurricanes like off the coast of Africa. So where the dust storms are blowing is like the same place as where the hurricanes are forming. And so those dust clouds actually serve to kill some of those hurricanes early on. Uh, that same dust goes across the ocean, drops into the ocean and helps to feed like this whole system, uh, of, of, of the, uh, of the, of the, um, like the food chain within the ocean. Some of that dust makes its way into the Gulf of Mexico and they believe is responsible for the red tide, which is a bad thing, not a good thing, by the way. And then a, like 27 million tons of that dust makes its way to the, to the, um, to the rainforest, to the uh, Amazon rainforest, and is the thing that actually gives nutrients to the rainforest because that's like the the hidden secret of the rainforest is that the rainforest isn't actually super nutrient, super uh, uh, rich in nutrients. Because of the massive amount of rainfall, it actually is fairly nutrient deficient. And so it's the dust storms from the Saharan desert that are providing the majority of the nutrients for the Amazon rainforest. So the most dry, desert, arid place in the, in the world actually supports the most life-giving and thriving place in the world. There's like a whole nother sermon or talk there about the, the, uh, the connection between life and death and whatever. But um, my point in, in that is that everything is connected in our world, whether we see it or not, and how I, how I perceive what's going to happen with all of this, or my my starting point for um, my faith and my thinking and what it means to live and be a human in this world matters. Because if I live with the idea that it's all going to get destroyed anyways, then nothing that I really do has any lasting or significant, uh, substantial significance. It's all just this temporary, it's this vapor that, that carries, uh, that, that, that doesn't seem to carry much with it. But if I do understand that it's all connected and I have this understanding that the earth is in fact my home, then all of a sudden, absolutely because everything's connected and because this place is my home, then every, everything I do matters. What I eat uh, where I spend my money, um, connections and, and friendships and relationships. Um, what, what I, what I buy, what I do with my trash, what kind of, what kind of boxes and, uh, products that am I buying? Where does that stuff come from? You know, like it's just, it can be a bit overwhelming, when you try to wrap your brain around how one single person like you affects everything else. But I think the beauty in it is that it says that what you do matters. What you do matters. It is important. The decisions you make are important, right? Not in a, not in a scary sort of negative way, but just like in a, in a really positive sort of way. You have the ability to make things better. You can bring positive change to the world through your actions. Knowing that what you do matters should give you an, uh, an enormous sense of significance to who you are and the kind of life you live. The world is your home. You're not really just passing through. Right? Even even uh, Jesus in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Like the earth is, a, is part of the inheritance. Your passport says citizen of earth. <laughs> You're from here. So of course, when you think about being somewhere else, it might make you a bit uneasy. You might be afraid of death because you think you're going somewhere else but you're from here. The earth is your home. Yeah. So all that to say, my friends, what you do matters.
what you do matters. The earth is your home, and you're not just a passing through. You're making a difference everywhere you go and everywhere you do. Everywhere you, where, everywhere you do? Everywhere you go and everything you do. There you go. It matters. It matters. It matters. You matter. You are a participant in the ongoing unfolding story of creation. You, through how you live, will make, a de- will make decisions about where this whole thing is going. So ultimately that means you're, you're pretty important. So I'm glad you're here. I'm hope you're, I hope you're making wise decisions with your life. I hope that you see the sneaky emu in your front yard. <laughs> the, the beauty of the thing in front of you is that what you do is what you do matters. Yeah. All right, friends, family, it's been a few minutes. I'm glad we've been able to hang out and spend this time together. I am sending you all the love that I can muster in your general direction. I hope that you will learn to see the beauty and the wonder of the divine that is always before you, that you will wake up to the good that is ever present. Mom, thanks for listening. I hope you have a, guys have a great day. This has been the Sneaky Emu episode number six. Episode number six. I hope that today you will be blessed, that you will never forget that in this moment you have a breath in your lungs and a beat in your heart, that you should never take that for granted, that you matter, that what you do in this life matters, and that you are a participant in the ongoing unfolding story of creation. You are making a difference in this world. Thank you guys so much for being here. God bless. We'll talk to you later. Teachings of the church and the state.